Chapter 11 of Roman Color Detective by Grace and Harold Johnson. The Slipperbox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 11 Through the brooding hush and peace of the hot countryside, Bill Devon drove to Crescent City. When he passed the cemetery at the edge of town, a glance at the dashboard clock showed 2.20. He had plenty of time, so he slowed down. Anyway, why should he care if he was late? Why had he said he'd come in the first place? Why hadn't he refused when Pintine called and said he and the prosecutor wanted to talk with him? He should have told them, if they wanted to see him, to come and get him and be done with it. If Pintine was going to arrest him, like he said he was, why didn't he do it? He was two minutes early for his appointment as he entered the reception room of the prosecutor's office. An attractive girl looked up pleasantly from her typewriter. Captain Devon? she asked. Yes. Mr. Tabor is expecting you. This way, please. And she moved ahead of him to open the door to an inner office. It wasn't much of a room, Bill thought, but it was better than the one the sheriff had over in the county jail. The massive mahogany desk, scarred and scratched, the two sectional bookcases filled with leather-bound law books, and five visitors' chairs made the room seem crowded. The top of the desk was bare except for one small piece of pink notepaper, a memo pad, and the pistol with which Sam Blake had been murdered. The sight of it made Bill wary. The prosecutor, a lean, middle-aged gentleman with a restless body and a good-natured face, got up when Bill entered and stretched his hand across the desk. "'You're a prompt, Captain. I suppose that's the Army training. My name is Tabor.' He gave off the suggestion that he moved, talked, and made decisions with nervous speed. Take a chair, any one. I noticed your limp as you came in. Leg bother you much? It's very painful at times. You used to play with Notre Dame? That's right. Guess you won't be doing much running or kicking for a while yet. What did the doctor say? Will you be able to run again? He believed that in time I would. Have you tried it yet? No, it hurts too much even when I walk. Tabor then asked the name of the hospital where Bill had received treatment in the States, and the names of the doctors who had cared for him, both here and in Korea. He sat silent a moment, as if to fix the names in his mind. With an easy graciousness, Tabor took out a pack of cigarettes. Cigarette, Captain? Thanks. Tabor took one and lighted both Bill's and his own from a silver pocket lighter. Bill looked at the cigarette, then at the prosecutor. This was a new twist to the same old piece of business, he thought. The prosecutor was giving him the friendly treatment. He'd read about it many times in books and magazines. Is this your standard routine with criminals, Mr. Tabor? Tabor gave Bill a humorous, owlish look. I should say not, but then you aren't a criminal. Seems to me you and Sheriff Pentine are trying hard enough to make me one. Where is he? He said he was going to be here. The prosecutor fixed his powdery gray eyes on Bill and regarded him with firm attention. At the last moment, I decided I didn't want Benteen here. As you inferred, maybe Benteen is trying overly hard to prove that you murdered Sam Blake. After all, it's his job. But until he brings you in and books you, you are a free citizen. As for myself, I'll consider you that until you are brought to trial and convicted. I did, however, want to talk to you. I'd like to hear your side of the story firsthand. We'll both benefit from it. You'll have a chance to remove the finger of suspicion pointing at you. And, if I believe what you say, we'll forget about you, and I'll see that Benteen puts his efforts to more fruitful endeavors. 
There's no compulsion in this. You are free to get up and walk out right now. What you say is just between us two, but I would appreciate your cooperation. Bill frowned. You're making a big mistake in wasting your time on me. Tabor smiled blandly. I don't suppose anyone has lived without making mistakes and having regrets. So, as you say, this may all be a mistake on my part, but I'd like to hear your side of the story. Okay, Bill said. I've told it so many times that once more won't matter. Where do you want me to start? I understand you have been over to St. Mary's Church, visiting your brother before the murder took place. Suppose you start from there. Bill watched the prosecutor closely while he talked. Tabor wasn't as cool and casual as he would have Bill believe him, for somewhere within him emotion worked strongly and left its fugitive impression on his face. Bill could see it in his eyes. Tabor's mouth held a forced smile, but his eyes showed when he was irritated or disbelieving. Bill knew from the softly put questions with which he interrupted occasionally that Tabor had the mind of a good trial lawyer, diagnostic and precise. It was when Bill got to the place where he passed Mary Jo Linton on the highway that the fixed smile left the prosecutor's face, and he asked the question which Bill knew he was going to ask. You say you heard the shot before you met Miss Linton? I understand she's not hard of hearing, yet she didn't hear the shot at all. How do you account for that? Hard thoughts drew Bill's eyelids half together and gathered wrinkles in his forehead. This guy, despite his easy front, wasn't believing a word he was saying. He was sitting back, picking flaws in the story. I wouldn't know. She said maybe she heard it, thought it a backfire, and paid no attention. You heard it and knew it for a gunshot. I just got back from where there was plenty of shooting. Naturally, I'd know a shot when I heard one, and I'd wonder where it came from. You get alert to those things at the front. Your brother, Father Kearney, and a number of others heard it from as far away as the school grounds, and yet Miss Linton, who was much nearer, did not. Doesn't that seem highly improbable? Not if she thought it was a car backfiring. She wouldn't pay any attention to it, and it wouldn't register in her mind. The prosecutor didn't press the point, and allowed him to continue. Bill felt that he'd won the round, for Tabor was hard put to keep his mask of easy good humor in place. When Bill finished the account of his actions the night Sam Blake was murdered, Tabor leaned forward on his desk, put his hand across his eyes a moment to think. Then he glanced at a sheet of paper on his desk. Bill knew it contained questions thought out in advance. Where were you last night at 11.15? Tabor asked. I was out driving around. Around? Where? The countryside. Alone? Yes. That seems to be a favorite pastime of yours, Captain. Anything wrong with it? Yes and no. He stared at Bill with a controlled grin, but it makes it hard for Benteen to prove you were someplace else. You see, he knows you were out with Miss Linton until about 10.30. You told her you were going home when you left her. How did it happen you went for a ride then, alone? I did start for my aunt's home, and intended to go right in and go to bed. But it was warm, and I wasn't sleepy, so I thought I'd buzz around a while. I don't see anything wrong in that. Tabor sat silently for a long moment the weight of his judgment pressing down hard on Bill. He was no longer smiling when he asked, How well do you know Mrs. Cotter, who lives next door to your aunt, across the highway from the Lintons? I've met her a few times on my visits here. Is she a good friend of your aunt? They're good neighbors. Mind telling me what this is all about? 
No, Captain. You see, on the night Sam Blake was murdered, Mrs. Cotter took a stroll across her front lawn. She saw you turn into the Linton driveway, but she didn't see anyone hold you up, as you claim. What's more, she says she believes the shot was fired after you entered the Linton driveway. Bill sat motionless, his vision blurred, a choking feeling in his throat. He couldn't breathe deeply enough. When he moved his hand across his forehead, it came away damp and clammy. A paralyzing fear swept through him. He felt that Benteen and Tabor were slowly, inexorably, building up a case of circumstantial evidence that would send him to prison, if not to the chair. Tabor rubbed his hands together idly, and a whispering sound filled the room. He was waiting for Bill to speak, and what was there to say? They had him pinned down flat. You want to change your story now, Captain Devon? The words hit Bill like a fist. Change his story? There wasn't any story to change. If he could only think what to say, if only Tim was here with him to help him think this through, to steady him. The thought of Tim soothed him. Tim wouldn't get upset like this. He'd take his own sweet time figuring the thing out before he spoke, and he'd have faith that God would direct him. Mrs. Cotter had seen him go up the drive, but hadn't seen the other man. So what? Nobody could see with all that shrubbery. The guy was in the shadows. Slowly his poise returned as the first wave of fear left him, when his mind began to rationalize. He knew he shouldn't let Tabor see that he was afraid. A man speaking the truth should never be afraid. Bill looked squarely into the prosecutor's eyes. There is no story to change. Remember, I told you the guy was in the shadows of the bushes when he held me up. It was pitch black there, so, of course, Mrs. Cotter didn't see him. But she must have seen me come right back out within a minute or so. Then I watched the guy run across the terrace and toss the pistol into the Linton house. I didn't go up the drive that time. I went through the bushes and across the lawn. Didn't she see me do that? Tabor pursed his lips, then forced a smile. I don't know. I'll inquire. Excuse me a minute. The prosecutor got out of his chair, walked into the adjoining room, and closed the door. Bill knew he was going to phone either Benteen or Mrs. Cotter, but why hadn't he used the phone here on his desk? Had Tabor tried to make it sound as if Mrs. Cotter was sure she had heard the shot after he'd gone up the driveway? If she believed that, she was confused. Old people got confused easily. Why, she must be way past seventy. Tabor re-entered the room and sat down. With no reference to Mrs. Cotter, or whether or not he had telephoned her, he picked up the pistol. This is the weapon which killed Sam Blake. Do you recognize it? Bill nodded. Did you at any time own this gun or one like it? No, sir. With an abrupt movement, Tabor arose. That's all, Captain. It was nice of you to come over. Bill's emotions were a mixture of anger and apprehension when he left the prosecutor's office. He wanted to get away from the courthouse, get away from Crescent City. His foot was heavy on the throttle as he drove the ten miles to St. Mary's Rectory. He was eager to tell Tim of this new development and all the talk about doctors and hospitals. He knew they wanted this information for further investigation. Were they trying to make him out a mental case, a returned, unbalanced, trigger-happy soldier? Bill found Tim in the office of the rectory and told him briefly about the interview. When Tim told him about Jerry's message, he left immediately. For the time being, anyway, he was going to forget his worries. He'd phone Mary Jo and ask her to go to the dinner at the festival. 
Father Tim looked at the small clock on his desk after Bill left. It was five minutes after five. He'd have to hurry to dress and get down to the auditorium with the change for Mrs. O'Brien and Mrs. Fenton, who were to act as cashiers for the first hour, until some of the men of the Holy Name Society could relieve them. As he dressed, his mind whirled with the thoughts of all that he had to do during the evening. He made a mental note to tell Father Kearney, before he went over to the school, about the possibilities of a bodyguard for John Linton. That should ease his pastor's mind. He would have to see to it that the additional paper plates, napkins, and cups, which had been delivered at the rectory, got over to the auditorium. There were supplies to accommodate a thousand diners, but at the last report the committee said sold over twelve hundred tickets. Besides, many people would come without a ticket and pay at the door. Father Tim paused before the crucifix on the wall of his room and knelt down. Hurried or not, he knew there would be time for everything after he had given a few extra minutes to God. He reached into his coat pocket and extracted his rosary. The first glorious mystery, the resurrection. He thought of how happy Jesus and his blessed mother must have been on that day of resurrection. With the saying of each Hail Mary and the moving of his fingers along the black beads, Father Tim felt renewed strength, a greater peace. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. He arose, creased his pants at the knees, replaced his rosary, and started down the three flights of stairs. He walked unhurriedly from the rectory to the recreation hall in the basement of the school. The auditorium had been transformed into a dining room, with long tables made of boards laid across trestles and covered with white cloths. Low, squat, red pottery pitchers filled with zinnias, cosmos, and marigolds centered the tables. After leaving additional tickets and the change with Mrs. O'Brien, seated at a card table at the entrance to the hall, Father Tim moved toward the kitchen. Aware of a squeaking shoe beside him, he looked down. Hello, Muscles. Hi, Father. Where'd you come from? Oh, I've been waiting a long time, Father. Your shoes squeak. It's a lap one. They're new. Muscles was all dressed up and his face shone with a recent scrubbing. Are you here for the dinner? Father Tim asked. Oh, yes, Father, and I'm going to eat an awful lot. I've got an adult ticket. Mr. Franklin gave it to me. Fine. When are you going to eat? As soon as they let me. I've been waiting. Father Tim glanced at his wristwatch. They'll be serving in a little while. I'm going into the kitchen now, and I'll see if I can hurry them up a bit. We can sit together if you want. I have to eat early, too. Sure, Father. That'd be swell. As he turned toward the kitchen, Muscles clutched his sleeve. Captain Bill's going to coach our team. Going to help you get us started. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Do you suppose he'll show us some Notre Dame tricks? Father Tim pursed his lips. I'm sure he will. In fact, I'll tell him to. Oh, boy. End of chapter 11